0: Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox, here are today's top stories. Elon Musk faces a lawsuit for walking back on his $44 billion deal. Twitter is demanding the money. In a drone strike, the U.S. military kills the top leader of ISIS in Syria. We speak with Dr. Sebastian Gorka to get the analysis.
1: A bad guy is killed. Uh, You know, you celebrate that because these are murderous thugs.
0: America after Roe v. Wade was ended. What are the consequences? Senators hear from people who are directly impacted by this historic Supreme Court ruling.
2: Just last week, as the exhibit shows,
0: uh, a man approached our care center with an armed machete. A 10-year-old rape victim denied an abortion in Ohio. That's the story that made national headlines last week, also repeated by the president. But is it true? Does she even exist? Liberty for Cuba. A year ago, protesters flooded the country's streets. And today, a U.S. congressman tells us about lawmakers' actions toward Cuba since then, and the sentiment among Cubans still living without basic rights today.
3: And all they're asking for is freedom. They're not asking for vaccines, for food, for... They're asking for freedom.
0: Twitter is suing Elon Musk for backing out of the $44 billion deal to acquire the platform. They've asked a court in Delaware to order Musk to complete the transaction. Twitter wrote in the lawsuit, quote, Musk apparently believes that he, unlike every other party subject to Delaware contract law, is free to change his mind, trash the company, disrupt its operations, destroy stockholder value, and walk away. Musk said he's terminating the deal because Twitter didn't respond to requests for information regarding fake accounts. And in the Middle East, the U.S. military has killed the top leader of ISIS in Syria in a drone strike. He was one of the top five ISIS leaders in the world. NTD's Jason Perry spoke with a former Trump strategist to get the analysis.
4: The U.S. Central Command Forces conducted a drone strike in northwest Syria, killing Maher al agal the leader of ISIS in Syria. Another senior ISIS terrorist was seriously injured in the strike as well. Al-Aqal was one of the top five ISIS leaders in the world, and he was also responsible for aggressively pursuing the development of ISIS networks outside of Iraq and Syria. President Biden released a statement about the drone strike, saying... It demonstrates that the United States does not require thousands of troops and combat missions to identify and eliminate threats to our country. When
5: a
1: bad guy is killed, uh, you know, you celebrate that because these are murderous thugs.
4: Dr. Sebastian Gorka is a former strategist to former President Donald Trump and the host of America First.
1: But I don't think it makes a strategic impact on the situation in Syria, which has been a, a bloodbath for many, many years now. What we have is a a murderous regime under Bashar al-Assad in Damascus that is trying to hold on to power and we have people that uh, want to live in a free Syria that are fighting against him.
4: Gorka said other countries acted differently during the Trump said, administration.
1: When there's a lack of American leadership, the world becomes a dangerous place. We saw this under Obama with the first invasion of Ukraine, with the rise of a military uh, China and we're seeing it again uh, under under the Biden administration. when we were in the White House, the world was stable. Uh, Russia behaved itself. Japan uh, was not threatened by China. Uh, North Korea was back in its box. Iran behaved itself.
4: Colonel Joe Buccino, a Central Command spokesperson, commented on the U.S. military's commitment to fighting terrorists. He said CENTCOM maintains a sufficient and sustainable presence in the region and will continue to counter threats against regional security. An initial review of the drone strike indicated there were no civilian casualties. We reached out to the White House for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News.
0: Turning now to abortion. How is the overturning of Roe v. Wade impacting the nation? Senators heard from firsthand witnesses today, one describing a man who approached a pregnancy center with a machete in hand. Here are the details.
6: Come to order.
7: The Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing Tuesday on the legal consequences of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. They invited five women from both the pro-life and the pro-abortion side to testify. The director of a pregnancy center in Sacramento, California said that her clinic had a security threat last week.
8: A man approached our care center with an armed machete. We have been forced to hire 24-hour on-site security. We've had to reinforce doors and bulletproof our walls. We've had to paint our building with anti-graffiti coating. We've added cameras, armed our staff with pepper spray, and stopped running our mobile clinic because of threats of violence.
7: Republican Senator John Cornyn had an intense exchange with Professor Kiara Bridges of UC Berkeley Law School who is on the pro-abortion side. The Senator noted that Bridges said that black babies are aborted three to four times more than non-black babies.
9: You also talk about systemic racism. Do you see any systemic racism associated with the prevalence of abortion for black babies as opposed to non-black babies?
5: Um, Absolutely, Uh, the higher race of unintended pregnancy that lead to higher abortion rates among Black people is um, a result of structural racism, systemic racism. Um, I understand systemic racism not to be mm-hmm. boogeymen who are trying to uh, dupe Black people into abortion care. I understand structural racism to be the systems that have made it so that Black people disproportionately bear the burdens of poverty in this country, um, the systems that have denied them the basics that they need in order to to live humane lives, like food, clothing, shelter, health care. So
9: you believe a that you system that be- responds
5: you- with the criminal believe- legal. System.
9: There ought to be more black babies aborted, is that right?
5: I believe that, that we ought to create the conditions under which people can leave li- lead lives that are filled with dignity and humanity. And that to means your, being to able your to way to of
9: thinking that happens when more black babies are aborted.
5: I believe I trust, I love black people with the capacity for pregnancy. I think they have agency, they have intelligence, they know what is best for themselves, and I would love to create the conditions under which they can live lives that are filled with dignity and humanity.
9: And do you think a do you think a, a baby that is delivered alive has value? Yes. Do you think that a, um, a, a baby that is not yet born has
5: value? I believe that a person with a capacity for pregnancy has value. They have intelligence, they have agency, they no, have I'm dignity. talking about the baby. And I'm talking about the person with the capacity for and the I'm, pregnancy. And
7: You're not answering the question. Another person who testified was Illinois Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton who's on the pro-abortion side. She said her state has become an oasis for women seeking abortions from out-of-state.
5: It looks like disenfranchised, yet determined patients coming from every surrounding state, but also from as far away as Tennessee, Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, and Florida. It looks like the entire staff of our state's abortion clinics fielding phone calls for appointments because the number of of out-of-state patients has doubled since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And that's on top of the nearly 10,000 women who already came to Illinois seeking abortion care.
7: Stratton says that she expects that number to grow in the coming months and years. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News.
0: And now an update to a story that made national headlines last week. Many, including President Biden, repeated the story of a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio who got an abortion. But was the story true? Ohio's attorney general told media what he knows, and it isn't much. In the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned,
10: media outlets, activists, and even the president used this story to push for abortion rights. A 10-year-old rape victim allegedly traveled from Ohio to Indiana to get an abortion.
11: 10 years old, raped, six weeks pregnant, already traumatized, was forced to travel to another state Imagine being that little girl. Just, I'm serious, just imagine being that little girl, 10 years
10: old. When NTD first reported on the story last week, we stated that we couldn't verify whether the girl was really a rape victim. The attorney general of Ohio now says he can't verify that either. He was on Fox News.
9: We have regular contact with prosecutors and local police and sheriffs. Not a whisper
3: anywhere.
10: The Indianapolis Star first reported on the story. They based their report on information provided by Dr. Caitlin Bernard. Bernard said the girl was sent to her from an Ohio child abuse doctor. But according to Ohio law, that doctor is required to report the rape of a 10-year-old to authorities, which apparently didn't happen.
9: In Ohio, uh, the rape of a 10-year-old means life in prison. I know our prosecutors and cops in this state There's not one of them that wouldn't be turning over every rock in their jurisdiction if they had the slightest hint that this had occurred.
10: Asked about the fact that not reporting the rape of a 10-year-old is illegal, the AG said that Dr. Bernard is outside of his jurisdiction. Also, that he doesn't know who the child abuse doctor in Ohio is that Bernard talked about, if the doctor even exists, he says. NTD has not been able to confirm that there really was a pregnant 10-year-old girl who got an abortion. We also reached out to Dr. Bernard to ask her for more information on the case, but she didn't get back to us before broadcast. She responded to other outlets earlier, saying she has no more information to give. Reporting by
0: Arian Pazdar, NTD News. And turning now to Cuba, on July 11, 2021, anti-dictatorship protests sprung up in the country. While many media companies put the figure in the thousands, a Cuban exile group says hundreds of thousands came out onto the streets. It's hard to know for sure because of the tight media control there, but we do know there was a heavy clampdown. And yet, a year later, the movement continues in one form or another. And it has support from outside the country, too. Earlier today, I spoke with Cuban-American and Congressman Mario Diaz-Bollard to learn more about the situation and American lawmakers' actions on Cuba. Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, a year ago yesterday, Cubans came out into the streets to protest. Many of them were clamped down on or sent to jail. But still, it seems like the protest movement is starting up again today. So what's happening with the state of the anti-dictatorship movement in Cuba?
3: Look, that dictatorship has zero support within Cuba. And you saw that a year ago when the people hit the streets. It was in every single part of the island. It was young and old. It was black and white. Uh, So, again, it's a populist and popular movement. Uh, And all they're asking for is freedom. They're not asking for vaccines, for food, for... They're asking for freedom. And um, the, the sad part, by the way, has been the lack of solidarity from President Biden and his administration. But the Cuban people, are determined to do what they can, and they understand that the consequences for stepping out are pretty severe. And we've seen that with these long prison sentences imposed even on children for the simple act of asking, peacefully asking for freedom.
0: And what has Congress done to help the Cuban people since last year's protests?
3: Look, we have written letter after letter. We've demanded that the president do some pretty basic things. I'll give you some of the the easiest ones. Um, You know, the Internet is basically non-existent for the Cuban people. It is shut down. Uh, They crack down on any sort of communication. So, uh, this administration can, within 24 hours, either through the private sector or through the government, uh, create a system where the Cubans can communicate among themselves. Uh, All it takes is for the president to give the green light. He won't do it. As a matter of fact, despite an administration that is asking for and, and the Democratic leadership in Congress, by the way, that is asking for Huge increases of of spending everywhere. Uh, Among the few places where they want to cut back and they're actually trying to cut back on spending is on radio transmissions to the island at this moment. So you have to ask, is it because they're clueless or is there something more to that? And I don't think they're clueless. I think they know what they're doing. I think they are, frankly, doing everything possible to help uh, the regime uh, in Cuba. IT SHOULDN'T SURPRISE US, THEY'RE DOING THE SAME THING WITH THE DICTATORSHIP IN Venezuela.
0: NOW, LAST MONTH, THE BIDEN ADMINISTRATION LIFTED RESTRICTIONS ON FLIGHTS TO CUBA, RESTRICTIONS WHICH THE PREVIOUS ADMINISTRATION HAD IMPLEMENTED. WHAT'S YOUR TAKE ON THAT?
3: THIS ADMINISTRATION, AS OPPOSED TO SHOWING SOLIDARITY AND SUPPORT FOR THE Cuban PEOPLE WHO ARE DOING WHAT THEY CAN TO SHOW THAT THEY OPPOSE THAT REGIME AND ARE DOING WHAT THEY CAN TO OBTAIN THEIR FREEDOM, AS OPPOSED TO GETTING SOLIDARITY FROM THIS PRESIDENT AND THIS ADMINISTRATION, What this administration has done is give unilateral concessions to the regime, decisions that help fund the regime. Uh, We got to remember, this is a state sponsor of terrorism. It's an anti-American dictatorship. And as opposed to increasing pressure because of the increasing repression on the island, it's just the opposite. What you're seeing from President Biden is unilateral gifts, concessions that help give legitimacy and money to the regime, something that is hard to understand, Unless you believe that there is some sort of sympathy uh, and support, ideological support uh, to that anti American regime 90 miles away from the United States.
0: So, what else should the U.S. do if it wants Cuba to become a free nation?
3: Very simple. Uh, Number one is use every diplomatic uh, 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 avenue that the United States has to pressure the regime and to pressure and uh, and, uh, and help get other countries to also pressure the regime uh, uh, against for human rights and for, uh, you know, for, in essence, freedom of the Cuban people. Number two is, you know, we have to demand certain things, demand elections, demand the freedom of press, demand uh, the freedom of association of independent labor unions. Uh, by the way, which is the law of the United States? You see, the sanctions go away. if In Cuba, three things happen. Some basic freedoms, freedom of press, independent labor unions, political parties. Number two is the releasing of all political prisoners, including these new ones, the hundreds uh, frankly, thousands of new political prisoners. And third, start the process towards elections. Then sanctions should go away. Shouldn't we continue to try to get other countries to also show solidarity, express solidarity and support to the Cuban people and not with the regime? But unfortunately, what we're getting from President Biden and this administration is just the opposite. Solidarity and recognition and legitimacy to the regime, and totally abandoning the hopes uh, of the Cuban people who are just asking for support in their effort for freedom.
0: But some people have argued that U.S. sanctions on Cuba have crippled Cuba rather than al- allowed it to become f- more free. What's your take on that?
3: Yeah, you know, the, the, the concept that somehow, um, you know, doing business and funding and giving legitimacy hurts a government, a regime, is frankly, you know, pretty absurd. (laughs) In the history of humanity, and by the way, I have heard that, too, Uh, what you you said, you have heard, I have heard it, too, right? In the history of humanity, never does uh, legitimacy and funding uh, help uh, eliminate a dictatorship. What does work, and there are case after case after case, is international pressure, diplomatic pressure, economic pressure. Uh, That's what we should be doing. Again showing solidarity with the people, not the dictatorships that repress the people. And in the case of Cuba, not only is it repressing the people, it's a threat to the national security interests of the United States. It's a double whammy. Helping the Cuban people helps them. uh, is the cause of freedom, but also helps our national security interests. It seems that this president and this administration is doing just the opposite, everything it can to hurt our national security interests, whether it's in this hemisphere, whether it's in other places around the world. And don't get me started about what this administration has done on the southern border, which is to empower, to authorize and empower the cartels who are now the ones who make the decisions as to who and what gets into the United States across the southern border, a a serious danger to the national security of this country.
0: Congressman Mario Diaz-Balard, thank you for your time.
3: Thank you. A privilege to be able to uh, spend this time with you.
0: Coming up, Texas is struggling under a heat wave. Pressure on its energy system is mounting, but they're holding up for now. And optimism for the economy is at a record low among small businesses. What could this mean for the U.S. economy? Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News.
12: Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding
2: of the issues of the day.
12: We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation.
0: The heat wave in Texas is creating a high demand for energy. That's putting a lot of pressure on the state's power grid. Could rolling blackouts be on the horizon for Texans? Here's more on that story.
13: As triple-digit temperatures scorch the state of Texas, homes and businesses are cranking up their air conditioners to escape the heat wave. But the state's population and economy have been growing and demand for power is only rising. It's repeatedly breaking all-time records this year. That also means mounting pressure on the Texas power grid, which is on its own, unlike every other state which share their power. Operator ERCOT, which stands for the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, oversees power to more than 26 million people in the state, or 90% of the state's power load. On Monday, it warned of a potential shortage in reserves, with no easy fix. Still. It's held off from imposing rolling blackouts across the state. Instead, ERCOT is relying on voluntary cutbacks and appeals to conserve energy. Large industrial power users, including miners of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, are doing just that. While ERCOT declined to comment on specific company power usage or facilities, it said there are about 10 cryptocurrency mining facilities connected to the grid, a number it only expects to grow over the next four years. Texas can't seek much in the way of help with its struggles, as Michael Weber, a professor in energy resources at the University of Texas at Austin, explains. Most states in the United States are part of larger regional grids. So the states of like Oklahoma or Louisiana, when they have a power shortage, can import power from neighboring states. Or if they have excess power, can export that power to the other states. For the most part, Texas can't. We're on our own. And that's BECAUSE WE'RE AFRAID OF THE FEDERAL REGULATORS AND DON'T WANT FEDERAL REGULATORS LOOKING AT OUR MARKET TOO MUCH. TEXAS LAST CALLED FOR ENERGY CONSERVATION IN MAY DURING AN EARLIER HEAT WAVE THAT DROVE UP PRICES TO MORE THAN $4,000 A MEGAWATT HOUR AFTER SIX GENERATORS TRIPPED OFFLINE. ONE MEGAWATT CAN POWER ABOUT 200 HOMES ON A HOT SUMMER DAY IN TEXAS. EARLIER THIS YEAR, ERCOT ASSURED RESIDENTS IT HAD ENOUGH RESERVES TO MEET DEMAND.
0: Now to small businesses. Optimism for the economy to improve is at the lowest it's been in the last 48 years. That's according to the latest survey by the National Federation of Independent Business. Small businesses plan to increase employment is also down by 7% compared to last month. Sentiment to expand is down 3% and expectations for sales to increase is down 13%. The survey says these are indicators that make a very strong case for an upcoming decline in economic activity. It says the only questions now are how long and how severe the downturn will be. And here to talk to NTD's Don Ma about the report is the New York State Director from the organization.
7: And here with us is Ashley Ranslow. She's the New York State Director for the NFIB. Thanks for coming on, Ashley.
8: Thank you for having me.
7: Now, everything down across the board for small business optimism. Now, what is going on here, Ashley? Break it down for us.
8: Yes, yeah, so we released our Small Business Economic Trends Report just recently, and it's really, it's what the report shows all, overall is it's really a difficult, tough time for small business owners. Like all of us, they're feeling the pain from inflation, labor shortages, supply chain disruptions, and that's really impacting how they see the future. And we're seeing record levels of very low expectations for business conditions moving forward, the lowest level we've seen in the 48-year history of this report. Um, So it's really tough times for small business owners right now.
7: An economist at Indiana University told Fortune that historically when demand falls, small businesses don't have the cushion to survive. Now, if we do go into an economic downturn, Is there a concern that the first thing that will happen is that small businesses will go out of business?
8: Certainly, I mean, anytime you have an economic downturn, small businesses certainly feel the brunt of it. We certainly saw business closures during the last economic downturn. We saw business closures when the COVID pandemic was at its height in 2020, right? Businesses just could not sustain being closed and not uh, getting revenue for that period of time. So certainly, You know, you could see business closures, you could see layoffs, you could see a reduction in benefits uh, or a reduction in, in employee compensation to just make sure that they can survive and keep their doors open.
7: What's the most important thing that small businesses should do?
8: I mean, right now, you know, it's a very difficult time for small businesses, right, with all of these economic challenges, these economic headwinds that are facing them. You know, but here in New York State, where we're located, there are things that the state can do to help alleviate some of the economic pressures on small businesses that they haven't done. So for example, unemployment insurance taxes are the highest they could possibly be here in New York State. New York has the ability to address that issue, they just haven't. So for small business owners, you know, they certainly have to plan and have to be prepared, but we also have to make sure that we're holding our elected officials accountable and make sure that we are encouraging them and advocating for them to be more small business friendly to make sure that we are doing all that we can to lower the cost of doing business to not have the highest possible taxes to not have increased regulations we need to make sure we're creating a better business environment so small businesses don't have to make those difficult choices should an economic downturn happen
7: now just one last thing ashley what should be the main takeaway from this report
8: I think that it is a warning to everyone, right? The economy is very fragile right now. Small businesses are in a very precarious position, but small businesses are so important to the state and local economy. We have to make sure that they not just survive, but can thrive. That's what helps fuel our economy. So any sort of public policy decisions going forward here in New York State, we need to be mindful that small businesses are not going to bear the economic brunt. We cannot raise taxes. We cannot increase regulations. We have to find a way to provide relief to small businesses. And that is going to help us make sure that the economy is, can move forward and that small businesses can thrive well into the future.
7: Ashley Ranslow, New York State Director and FIB, thanks for coming on.
0: Thank you so much for having me. We're just about halfway into this year's Amazon Prime Day event, where shoppers can get some of the lowest-priced items on the Internet. But is there a catch? NTD's Phil Zoe dives deeper into this year's mega-sales event.
6: Amazon's Prime Day sales event is happening right now. Discounts on items like jeans, cameras, Playstations, to the biggest big screen TVs.
14: We know that there are going to be some great deals, so we are pretty avid Prime shoppers.
6: Prime Day started in 2015, right around Amazon's 20th birthday.
14: I always say I'm a grandma
10: on the platform um, because not many sellers have been around much longer than that.
6: Leslie Hensel has been an Amazon seller for over a decade.
10: So Prime Day has been a great chance for sellers to jumpstart some of their products that aren't selling as much to have some revenue come in the door and a lot of sellers then flip that revenue into buying inventory for the holiday season.
6: But it takes a lot of effort to qualify as a seller on Prime Day, according to Dallin Hatch, head of communications at e-commerce data firm, Pattern.
13: We want to discount a given product at least 25% below the lowest price uh, over the last like 30 to 90 days. So it has to be a pretty deep discount. But Prime
6: Day is not for everyone. Small business owner of around 30 years, Mitch Goldstone hates Prime Day. He calls it a marketing gimmick. You have to pay for play. You can't participate in
4: Amazon's Prime Day unless you put up $139 up front to join Prime. So that means you're spending $139 before saving a penny.
6: The first ever Prime Day in 2015 was a one day event only, selling over 34 million items. That translates to 400 items sold per second.
14: We've been Prime members probably since Prime started. As a matter of fact, I received an Amazon Prime package delivery uh, just this morning. Laura
6: Pepping and her husband are Seattle residents living right by Amazon's headquarters. They've been Prime members since the beginning in 2005. Always buying big on Prime Day. This year is going to be different.
14: We really don't want to get caught up in the hype, which is something that marketers really appreciate.
6: She's adopted a new mindset since the pandemic.
14: The bottom line is we've adopted this Marie Kondo mindset, which is. Purchasing for joy or if you really need it, not if it's something that you already own.
6: Prime Day lasts until the end of July 13th, Wednesday, and is available in around 20 countries. Phil Zoe, NTD News.
0: And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at NTD.com. And coming up, a rally marched through a Southern California town telling onlookers that babies' lives matter. They marched to a Planned Parenthood to make their voices heard. And in California, an Olympic medalist was attacked by a homeless man in broad daylight. She sustained multiple fractures on her face. Stay tuned for more after the break. the West Coast. A pro-life group rallied in Southern California to raise awareness about conversations around abortion. They say they're against the state becoming a bastion for abortion. NTD's
12: Jackie Rios has the story. On Saturday, the pro-life movement, Baby Lives Matter, a rally and a march near the Santa Monica Pier in Los Angeles. The event was to warn to Californians that despite the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, abortion continues in the state. One woman who previously had an abortion says there should be other options. And it was only by accident where I found out that there's a, a lot of women who talk about the negative impacts of abortion I had absolutely no idea I thought I was wrong for feeling what I was feeling because it's legal right and we think that the laws protect us so for a woman if it's legal the laws protect us it's a very it's very strange and the women that go into the abortion clinics they feel like they don't have a choice so women don't have abortions because of freedom of choice they have abortions because they feel like they have no freedom and no choice samurano said the people who are pro-choice are often silenced the abortion industry is a multi-billion dollar industry so they silence our voices and that's why i'm here today is to speak up for women just like me to speak up for women because not all of us believe that abortions are one of the service planned parenthood provides According to the organization, it completed over 350,000 abortions in 2019. That's nearly half of the 620,000 abortions reported to the CDC that year. One speaker emphasized the significance of the change to federal law.
15: This is like taking the beach of Normandy, right? We still got to make it to Berlin, but it was huge. Roe v. Wade being overturned was just unbelievable for equal rights for all human beings, regardless of where you're located. And But now the work has just begun. We still got to take Berlin.
12: But some Californian politicians are taking a different stance. Governor Gavin Newsom and lawmakers have said they want to make California an abortion sanctuary state. Assembly Bill 2223 is part of that package.
15: They're pushing for even uh, such radical bills as infanticide bills, AB 223, 2223, and um, they're preparing itself to be a um, a sanctuary state for abortion rights, and so we need to mobilize and and create an environment and a culture of life here in in Los Angeles and California.
12: According to the bill, a mother or health care provider cannot be held responsible for an abortion or perinatal death of a baby. But perinatal is not precisely defined in the bill. It could refer to infants ranging from newborn to one year old.
16: At some point, people need to draw the line. And I think people with the infanticide the AB2223 uh, families are just have had enough. For them to continue pushing the issue outside the womb, um, that's infuriated a lot of people. So um, I understand that it's going to go back to the states, but, you know, we'll take it state by state if we have to. We will. Marshall Warren of
12: both the states and certain organizations' opaque nature on abortion reporting.
16: There's a lot of uh, people that have confirmed uh, how these babies are aborted and um, have been inside of the Planned Parenthoods. They target the um, minority communities, which is is, is very uh, alarming for me because that's where I'm from. I, I grew up in a very poor community.
12: The march started near Santa Monica Pier and proceeded to the Planned Parenthood near Third Street Promenade. Jackie Reels, NTD News, Los Angeles.
0: And staying in California, a former Olympian is recovering after a homeless person attacked her in downtown Los Angeles over the weekend. Here are the details.
2: Kim Glass, an Olympic volleyball silver medalist, was saying goodbye to a friend after lunch in downtown Los Angeles when a homeless person hit her. She said he was holding something and looking at her with hateful eyes.
16: Before I knew it, A big metal bolt like pipe hit me, hit me right here, here. I just, it happened so fast. He literally flung it from the street, so he was not even close to me at all.
2: Glass said the man was held down until the police and ambulance came.
16: I do have um, multiple fractures up here and a small one here, but my friends have been, family, amazing.
2: According to the Los Angeles Police Department in the Post, the 51-year-old suspect was booked for felony assault with a deadly weapon without bail. Glass said her vision is fine and even joked about the durability of her false eyelashes, saying she'd want to make a deal to buy more. She also warns her viewers about being aware of their surroundings to stay safe because there are people who are mentally ill on the streets.
0: A radical environmentalist group is making life difficult for SUV drivers around the world. Recently, they hit drivers near California's Bay Area. Local police say an investigation is underway. NTV's Daniel Hall reports.
15: A left-wing group known as Tire Extinguishers claimed on its website that they deflated tires on 12 SUVs in California's Vacaville this month in the name of climate change. A spokesperson for the group told the San Francisco Chronicle that this is the first action in the Bay Area, and the first of many. The group has already struck in other major U.S. cities as well as across the globe. A leaflet left on some targeted vehicle's windshields read, Attention, your gas guzzler kills. We have deflated one or more of your tires. You'll be angry, but don't take it personally. It's not you, it's your car. The group advised SUV owners to use public transportation despite some areas having limited options. Their website provides clear instructions with video on how to deflate cars' tires. Deflating vehicle tires can put the driver at serious risk of injury or death. Lieutenant Katie Cordona of the Vacaville Police Department said the case is being investigated as criminal vehicle tampering is punishable by up to one year in jail. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California.
0: Coming up, a nation in chaos. The presidential palace stormed the prime minister's residence in flames, and protesters warning of more to come amid an economic crisis and food shortages called the perfect storm and a cautionary tale for all. We have word on the ground. And the euro slid to a 20-year low and made it almost equal in value to the dollar. The slide is driven by concerns an energy crisis will bring on a recession. That and more here on NTD News.
13: NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know.
0: More updates on the demonstrations in Sri Lanka. Protest organizers and union leaders are warning of a terrible, massive strike and more demonstrations if the president and prime minister do not step down by Wednesday. Protesters have reportedly burned down the homes of more than three dozen politicians, including the prime minister's residence, And the government is ordering troops to shoot on site. Earlier today, I spoke with the senior assistant editor at the Hamal South Asian news outlet. He's in Sri Lanka now, reporting on the situation as it develops, amid the rolling power cuts, fuel and food shortages stoking this conflict. Marlon Ariasinghe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you're right there in the thick of it in Sri Lanka right now, where the uprising is. Can you tell me what it's like there on the ground?
17: Well, uh, right now things have, uh, I guess, uh, torn down a little. And uh, as you might have seen uh, through reports, uh, the official residences of the uh, of the president and the presidential secretariat have been occupied by protesters, and they're still there. And uh, they have uh, declared that they will not leave until uh, the resignations of both the president and the PM uh, is official.
0: An all-party government has been proposed to replace the current government. Is this what the protesters want?
17: Um, Yes. Yeah, so uh, the opposition leader yesterday, um, he expressed his willingness to set up a, um, uh, an all-party government, um, an interim government, but the issue is he does not command the majority in the parliament. So we are not still sure uh, whether what he's proposing uh, can actually uh, be realized. Um, on the protesters' front, uh, they there were several groups of protesters, representatives who met uh, with the opposition parties today to express their uh, concerns and their demands to the opposition parties and um, i think it was reported that the opposition parties uh, they they have uh, accepted most of their demands
0: do most sri lankans agree on what led to the current situation
17: well yeah i think uh over the last 8 months uh there has been a kind of a applied education in the sense that we've been experiencing uh some of the uh, uh I mean we've been experiencing the results of some of these uh um, misguided decisions and uh, economic mismanagement uh that um uh, that kind of came to be characterized with this government so i think uh, sri lanka uh, and sri lankans in general do uh, understand where or how we got here. Now, for example, I can talk about the, the overnight chemical fertilizer ban, which was uh, uh, which was implemented last year uh, without any proper plans, which uh, completely crippled uh, the, the agricultural industry of, of Sri Lanka. And, um, I mean, the, 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 uh, the cost of this, this ban, we still haven't been able to uh, uh, assess. And there's a looming food crisis, uh, which is a result of this ban. So, uh, you know, things, uh, You know, in general, I think the Sri Lankans are aware uh, that it was the misguided decisions of this government which led, to, led us to this particular juncture.
0: And this discontent has been growing for quite some time. How did lawmakers respond in the lead-up to this crisis?
17: Well, I think this is why there have been island-wide protests. I mean, for the last six months, there have been a lot of anger and a lot of dissent and a lot of discontent on the streets. But uh, there has been, uh, I think, a kind of a disconnect uh, when it comes to the lawmakers and what what we have seen from the parliament, because there there was a lot of apathy and indifference uh, uh, in the parliament sessions when there are you know when there were people dying in queues, for example. Now we have about fifteen people who have died while waiting for gas, while waiting for fuel. Right, so there was a, a, a clear disconnect. Uh, with what was uh, happening on the street and uh, what was happening uh, in the parliament where, you know, any sort of uh, resolution, uh, you know, should be discussed there. So there was a lot of apathy and indifference that the Sri Lankans saw in the parliament. And this is one of the uh, major reasons for the boiling over and the, the protest that we saw on the, uh, on the 9th of July
0: and yet the response of the police during these protests has been quite brutal that you've pointed to a culture of violence among the police even attacking journalists could you explain that a little more
17: yeah so uh, on the 9th uh, i think um, i think that's uh, live i mean it was basically broadcast broadcasted live where uh, protesters were, were attacked relentlessly by uh, by tear gas by water cannons and earlier in the day uh, the armed forces actually shot a protester, so there, there, yes, there was there was a fatality as well. And uh, later in the day, I was near the the PM's uh, private residence, which was um, which was burned. And uh, at that at that point, also there were uh, uh, like what we have just mentioned, there were attacks on journalists. And this is one of the reasons which
0: led to the escalation
17: of uh, of the um, of the
0: conflict people are describing sri lanka's situation as a cautionary tale could you tell me more about that
17: yeah so i mean we've been described as a cautionary tale like you just said and it's like a horror story i mean and we are we are currently living this and uh, uh, it's it almost feels as if it's like an economic death spiral that we are on uh, and uh, why we are uh, known as a cautionary tale i think one of the reasons which i just mentioned before uh, you know how not to implement organic farming, right? So uh, the mistake that was uh, the misguided decision to do that uh, it resulted in because we had to import um, uh, rice uh, because of the food share shortages that that resulted from this. Then I think uh, when it comes to um, the central bank and one of the decisions the, that the central bank governor took last year was to artificially inflate the rupee, which led to a huge discrepancy uh, in the um, uh, in the selling and buying rates of the dollar uh, within official financial institutions and the actual market, and this gravely impacted foreign remittances because this is one of the ways that we get foreign exchange, where Sri Lankan migrants send money to the country, and this uh, uh, led to a huge loss of foreign exchange. Uh, so this is why we are being described as a cautionary tale because we have been uh, uh, we are displaying to the world th- these are the things that you must not do. These are the decisions, economic decisions. Political decisions that you must not take when uh, the country is undergoing uh, an economic crisis. The world is undergoing uh, a a general economic recession due to the pandemic, and of course, right now due to the 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 war in Ukraine.
0: Marlon Aryasinghe, thank you so much for joining us, and please take care.
17: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: The euro slid to a 20-year low and came close to parity against the dollar on Monday. This is driven by concerns that an energy crisis will tip the region into a recession. The U.S. dollar was boosted by expectations that the Federal Reserve will hike rates aggressively.
14: The euro tumbled Monday to its weakest level since December 2002. William Rind, founder and CEO of Granite Shares, says the drop reflects the fact that Europe is bearing the brunt of the crisis in Ukraine.
11: Unfortunately for Europe, the effect of, certainly Russia, Ukraine has been more amplified um, than it has been here in the States. And certainly energy prices are much, much higher, relatively speaking, in Europe um, than here. So the impact of higher commodity prices has been felt more in Europe than it has in the States so far
14: and some fear it could soon get worse. The biggest single pipeline carrying Russian gas to Germany, the Nord Stream 1, began annual maintenance on Monday, with flows expected to stop for 10 days. Governments, markets, and companies are worried the shutdown might be extended because of the war in Ukraine. But while the euro is sinking, the U.S. dollar is soaring. The U.S. currency has gained on expectations that the Fed will continue to aggressively raise rates as it tackles inflation. The Fed is expected to lift rates by another 75 basis points at its July meeting. The strong dollar is good news for U.S. travelers going overseas this summer, where everything from hotels to restaurants to shopping will be at a discount from prices just a few months ago.
0: British Olympic running champion Mo Farah revealed that he was brought to the UK illegally as a kid. He says he was forced to work for years as a domestic servant. Farah won Olympic gold in both the 5,000 and 10,000 meter races at both the 2012 and 2016 Summer Games. He made the revelation in a BBC documentary where he announced that his real name is Hussein Abdi Kahin. He explained that he was given the name Mohamed Farah by those who took him from Djibouti when he was about 8 or 9. Farah said he thought he was going to Europe to live with relatives. Instead, a woman he didn't know brought him to London and made him care for her children. He says he wasn't allowed to go to school until he was 12, where he became a star athlete. He eventually confided in a teacher who contacted social services. Farah says he's telling his story to challenge public perceptions about trafficking and slavery. And Britain is scheduled to announce a new prime minister by September 5th. But the voting for the new head of state is going to start as early as this week.
9: We have agreed the way forward uh, for the leadership election. Nominations will open and close tomorrow. We'll have a first ballot on Wednesday.
0: So far, 11 candidates have thrown their hat in the ring to succeed Boris Johnson as leader of the ruling Conservative Party and Prime Minister. Candidates need at least 20 nominations from the party's over 350 lawmakers even to proceed to the first round of votes on Wednesday. Anyone who has received less than 30 votes will be eliminated before another vote on Thursday. Most candidates are ch- campaigning with the promise of heavy tax cuts. Outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson quit after losing support from his own lawmakers and ministers following a series of scandals. And coming up, NASA is releasing full-color images from the new James Webb Space Telescope. One of the first images shows never seen before galaxies. And The Economist just revealed the most livable city in the world for 2022. Can you guess which city it is? We'll tell you the answer after this short break. On Monday, NASA unveiled one of the first full-color images from the James Webb Space Telescope. It's the deepest picture of the universe ever taken, captured by the largest space telescope ever built. The image shows how a massive group of galaxy clusters acts as a magnifying glass for the objects behind them. It's called gravitational lensing, and it resulted in Webb's first deep field view of incredibly old and distant galaxies, some of them never seen before. The galaxy cluster in the image appears as it did 4.6 billion years ago. The $9 billion infrared telescope built for NASA by aerospace giant Northrop Grumman is expected to revolutionize astronomy by allowing scientists to peer farther than before and with greater clarity into the cosmos to the dawn of the known universe. And now to Vienna, which ranks as the most livable city in the world, according to the British magazine The Economist. Its infrastructure, especially its affordable public transport lengths, made the European capital stand out. NTD's Eddie Aiken brings us that story.
11: Known for its imperial Habsburg architecture, Austria's capital has yet again grabbed the first place in a worldwide ranking, that of the most livable city. According to the Economist's Global Livability Index, this year sees Vienna back in the top position. The criteria used for international rankings are, of course, topics such as infrastructure, public transport, education and healthcare, and Vienna is in a very fortunate position in this respect. It had dropped to 12th place in 2021 because its museums and restaurants were closed, reflecting the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions of the Austrian government at the time. An example of the good and affordable infrastructure is its public transport. Over a million Viennese have an annual pass for public transport, says the city public transport website. That's more than half the Viennese population. The size of the city and the immediate availability of leisure possibilities make it very attractive. Uh Vienna is a metropolis where I can ride my racing bike here uh, near the vineyards in the afternoon or relax in the Vienna woods and on the same day go to the state opera in the evening and experience world-class culture. It takes nine minutes and six stops on the tube from St. Stephen's Cathedral, the heart of the city, to reach the so-called Old Danube, an arm of the river for a swim. Its calm waters become one of the city's most beloved recreational areas in the summer. But the old Danube is not the only swimming spot in the city. The banks of the Danube Island are also very popular.
6: Of course, the availability of green space is also important for the quality of life. And Vienna has about
11: 50% parkland within the city limits. Overlooking the city are its hills, where people can go for a hike in the woods, and stop for a glass of wine at one of the city's taverns, where the wine is made from their own vines. Then there's also the water. The fresh taste of Viennese tap water is renowned, as it comes directly from Alpine Mountain Springs. Residents of the city hope to hang on to the accolade of the most livable city for years to come. Hedy Aitken, NTD News.
0: And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.